Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, we are back with the Good Life Podcast, and I am interviewing today uh, Reverend Charles McRaven. So he goes by Reverend Mac, that's what most people call him, but he has a very interesting history. He is a blacksmith, a stonemason, and he is a log home builder, uh, in addition to being a consultant for historic sites, uh, for architecture, and also he, has been, he is a writer as well. He's written several uh, fiction works as well as several nonfiction works pertaining to the different crafts. So, Reverend Mack, thanks for being with us today. So, just to begin with, you know, how do, what is your background in, you know, how did you go, you, you started in your biography, you talk about you were teaching journalism, and then you, you eventually went from that to being a log home builder and a stonemason and a blacksmith. So, what was the process in you going from, you know, just being in the classroom to actually being in the everyday out in the world and doing all kinds of work like this? Well, I was raised on a farm in Arkansas, and uh, we always built things. Uh, my dad wanted us two boys, three, well, three of us boys, a younger brother who was a little young, wanted us to learn building. So when I was 11 and uh, my brother was 13, he had us dismantle and move a 30-foot log cabin, which we then restored. And he said, if you need help, call on me. But uh, my brother was and is at the age of 89, very stubborn. So he did, never would call on my dad. He rigged pulleys and, and uh, levers and all kinds of things. And the two of us did that job. And I was intrigued at working with my hands. We built a stone house uh, two years later, my brother and I. But I'd always wanted to be a college professor. There was just something about it that intrigued me. And eventually, I worked my way through college. It took several years and uh, taught uh, for eight years, taught journalism in uh, three different campuses, actually. But I just literally was uh, uh, building and uh, doing stonework and so forth in the summer, and I never lost my uh, interest in that. So finally, I just decided I didn't want to be inside anymore. Transition. All right. So, so this has been an interest for you, but you know, a lot of people just focus on one thing. You know, either building log homes, or I know you've done post and beam, and or maybe uh, stone masonry. But you do all of these things. So, so, so how did you develop your your talents, and and, and what is it that made you want to pursue all of these things? at the same time? Well, I have a checkered history. Anything that interested me, I usually would pursue. And the end result is I'm, I'm quite old because I pursued so many of them. <laughs> but I just had a lot of interests. And when I, something appealed to me, I said, I'd like to learn more about that. But I always like working with my hands. 
and that's uh, these various pursuits. Uh, well, I'm still doing it, as a matter of fact. So I would just want to be outside building or fixing things, and despite my uh, pursuit of education, and I worked for some corporations and so forth too, but I just didn't want to be inside. I wanted to be outside working with my hands. All right. So one of the things that that, that first intrigued me about your work, uh, and I, just for background, we, we bought your book, The Classic Hewn Log House, for our son at Christmas, and he was taken by it. And then as we, were, as we looked at it, I actually had a hard time putting it down when I was preparing to wrap it. I said, this is really interesting, and I'd like well, to... Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, so, but you talk about the importance of nature and how nature itself, the environment in which you are building, should play a part in the type of home you build. So, could you explain that for us? What role should nature play in the type of home someone builds? Well, I believe I have a chapter on site, uh, finding the right site, and uh, I did an article for uh, magazine anyway 20 30 years ago and emphasized the site what you build should blend with the area and not fight it uh, developers routinely clear cut a place and make it flat make it cheaper to build and then they build something with all the clay and mud around and then they maybe put a few shrubs i always like to build among the trees if possible and uh, make a house design fit the site and that takes a little doing and it's pretty much subjective. But you're going to drive up or walk up to your house many, many, many times and you have to like what you see. And if you don't, if the house is wrong for the site and wrong for the natural setting, it's going to be an irritant from then on. So it's, first of all, you search for a site uh, that you like, that uh, a house would blend with. Then you try to build something of natural materials that doesn't jar the landscape. Trash it all by digging it all up and cutting all the trees. You try to let it blend in. And that just makes for a happier situation all the way. All right. So for a lot of people, though, we don't think about building a home in any type of natural setting. I mean... For, for, for most people in the United States, a home is a place that probably is about 30 feet from another home, and it's in a suburb. And, and not that those are bad, necessarily, but you know what you're talking about is just, a, it's a very different mindset than what is the, the, the majority of people have. So how does someone develop thinking that they're thinking in the way that you're talking about well the the hard thing today is to buy enough land to get your house to blend and uh, I'm working on a book now on building uh, and it deals a lot with recycling but that's beside the point the first thing I, I suggest is that a person uh, stretches resources to buy the right piece of ground to put a house on. Now, in a subdivision, that's not going to happen unless you're at the end of a cul-de-sac or someplace where you can have 
maybe a lot that spreads out wider, uh, wedges out wider as you go deeper into preferably woods. But I think it's important enough for a couple uh, with children who are going to raise children to get the right site, and that means buying a little land. It might only be an acre, two, three acres. Uh, we bought this place in Virginia back in 1978, and it has 22 acres. And I actually don't get on more than three or four or five acres of it most of the time. But uh, I manage my own timber, and that's what I do with the rest of it. But at any rate, I advise people, if you can, instead of settling for a place that does not let your home be a part of nature, I'd hold off a little bit if possible, save up a little money, and try to get that piece of land paid for before we go into debt for a house. Uh, it's worth it in the long run. It's worth it to your children to grow up in a place like that where they can run, uh, climb trees, run in the wood, play in a brook if they happen to have one. It's worth a lot, and I advise people, if possible, to aim for that. Not possible for everybody, sure. but uh, it's rewarding, very rewarding. Well, I know not everyone wants to do that type of thing, but, but there are many who certainly are, are interested in becoming more independent due to various things in society that, that, that go on. I mean, right now, when you go to the store, you never know what will be, what shelves will be empty, right, you know, as we speak. So shortages are becoming a part of everyday life, and this is just, a, you know, a, a limited degree of shortages right now, but I know the same applies to building materials and I know that many people are growing in their interest of seeing and, and, and having some independence. So That's a very good thing, and we need to look at history. We go back to the pioneers in this country, and uh, there's an old saying that all it took was two people and a piece of ground. It's not quite that simple, but there were a lot of books published back in the 70s and into the 80s about independence. The most famous one was probably, I can't remember his name, but he wrote a book, Five Acres and Independence. And five acres are going to be expensive some, uh, for most people, but it's generally worth it. On five acres, you can have an extensive garden. You can, if you have timber, you can have the basic materials to build a house. If you have stone, you can build a fireplace, a foundation, or whatever's necessary. Often on a steep slope, you'll have to have a retaining wall. So you look for a site like that, but going back to our ancestors, they didn't have anything but limited tools. I made the comment in an interview a few years ago that, uh, and well, somebody made it before I did, the pioneers would go under the wood with nothing but an axe and build a homestead, build a house. And if they had a plow, they could put in a garden. If they had a mule, it took very little, and a lot of people today, and did back in the 70s, go back to the earth, and a lot of them got, uh, took on too much and kind of burned out and moved back to town, but a whole lot of them stayed there, and they built, and they raised their children there, and it's possible uh, to become almost completely self-sufficient. We grew up on a farm in Arkansas, and we didn't own a car, and we did not have electricity. Uh, my father had studied engineering, and we did have running water. He built a hydraulic ram that worked from a spring on a distant hill. 
But we didn't have a whole lot of things that we take for granted today, yet we lived quite well. We didn't have electricity for a freezer, but we did a whole lot of canning. And it was a canning season when you brought the vegetables and you uh, butchered a hog or whatever and canned the meat. And uh, we, we did quite well. And a person can do that today if it is that important to him or her. So that, that book, by the way, was uh, Maurice Keynes, K-A-I-N-S, Five Acres in Independence. So, yeah, so I know a lot of people, because as you said, that was published in the 70s, and a lot of people read that book, and I've still seen that book on, on, on certain uh, people's pages. Uh, so, you know, the desire for that is a good desire in, in its beginning because you are wanting to take care of your family. Now, of course... You know, you being a pastor, of course, uh, know that we're never fully independent because you know we, we always depend on God and and, and we have his, his people. But sometimes, though, because we live in a modern world, there are a lot of things that we think are necessities that aren't actually necessities. That's right. It depends on what level of survival the person wants. Uh, I can't help thinking back in biblical times how people were very close to the earth because uh, it was the only place to be. And they had uh, livestock or they had a vineyard or they had a, a grain field or a big garden or whatever, and they were very independent. And I really think they were a lot closer to God there than now we have all the distractions and all the material uh, uh, say, demands now that uh, you don't have when you do make that uh, decision to get a little closer to the earth and get a little closer to being independent and I see that uh, my church is very much a country church all of my people living back on farms and uh, I just I think that the closeness to God goes right along with the, the natural habitat. They're blending a house and your lifestyle with nature. Uh, God created nature. God created the earth. God uh, created us. And I don't think he meant for us to get quite as technical as we are today. <laughs> so one of the things you talk about in your book is, you know, when you mentioned not or working with nature, not against it. Have you read J.R.R. Tolkien before? The Lord of the Rings. Have you read those books? Not extensively. So you know, he was very much a a, uh, a lover of nature, and in his book, he speaks prominently about the importance of uh, of caring for nature because in fact the um the villains in that in in that novel are the ones who are just destroyers of nature and those who are we'd say the good guys are the ones who more often are caring for it so you when i was reading your writing it reminded me a lot of him so one of the things when you talk about caring for and, and, and wisely putting your home in the land, you talk about not branding the earth. So how do you describe branding the earth? 
Well, that business of bulldozing everything and starting with a flat piece of ground is, uh, takes years and years and years for the nature to re reclaim a site. Like when timber companies clear cut and they don't, uh, they don't selectively uh, cut. I have 20 acres in timber and I selectively cut my tree. I manage my own forest and actually get a tax break for doing that. Uh, but I cut the trees if there's a double one, I may cut one half of If two of them are too close together, I may do another one. But the branding that people do in clear cutting and in strip mining, mining it just, it's just atrocious, really. And there's no need for a person to do that with his house. Uh, again, if you build a subdivision, the developer is going to go in there and build as many houses as cheaply as he can. And he's not going to be able to pay a whole lot of attention to nature because that's going to cost him more money. But uh, my motto has always been, leave the land better than you found it. Uh, I'm an advanced age at 86, and I won't be around much longer, but I'm hoping and planning for this place I have to be in better condition than it was when I found it. Of course, it'll have my house and outbuildings on it, but they're not to be intrusions. I'm building out of stone and logs and timber frame, which are all very natural, very little paint. Right, okay. So, one of the, uh, another thing I appreciate about your books is while you display a, a strong appreciation for traditional crafts, you do not romanticize the crafts. You don't make them out to be something that, if, you know, that, that you can just give a little bit of time to and you, that, that you can be a, an expert in it, or it's not something that doesn't have its dangers. So, well, it can be dangerous. A dear friend of mine, about five years ago, turned over on his little uh, four-wheeler and uh, severed an artery and bled to death before anybody could find it. And that can happen on a hardback on you that you cut. And I've been cutting trees since I was ten years old, and I still am extremely careful. But the thing that people tend to romanticize is the finished product. And to get there, you have to put in a lot of sweat. And you get discouraged. A lot of people get discouraged. When I had my, I was a Class A contractor doing restorations almost entirely, and I found that I would have to estimate what I thought a job would take and multiply it by three. Because there are going to be things that come up, everything's going to be harder than you think it's going to be. And uh, you have to be able to hang in there, and you can't romanticize it to the point that you ignore all the uh, labor involved. And it'll put you in shape if you're putting out your own house. It's a wonderful experience, wonderful experience. But it's hard. It's hard work. So, for the person who is interested in, you know, in, in, in building. A, a traditional log home, and, and that is something I will say about your book, the classic hewn log house. The, your book is not one of of mere uh, lovely kits that have been put together. These are real traditional, many of them very old. You know, the, the logs that you use are very old. So, where do, would a person start? You know, let, let's say a guy. He's in, say, mid-20s to, you know, older, 
and he's interested in, in getting started with this, what would you tell him? Well, actually, I have a, my wife's sister has a nephew who's out of the service. She's around 30, and he's been in touch with me recently and uh, has been going to college after the service phase in the Marine. But we're actually working on something right now when he can come up and I can get him started helping me on a project. And the thing I suggest is that if a person wants to build and you know a really house he'll be proud of he or she uh, first thing is to build something small to find out if you're a builder or not an awful lot of people have no uh, no natural skill for building uh, an awful lot of people that way people romanticize the overall cabins well they're not all wonderfully built. A bunch of them are shacks to begin with, and most of them fell down. Right. But it does take a lot of discipline, and the, the thing is to start small without without just jumping into it, you know, without knowing what you're getting into. The best thing would be to work for somebody else for a while as a, uh, as a helper. I used to take on apprentices when I had my uh, restoration and building business, and I would people who had the potential for moving up. I didn't want just a pair of hands and somebody who, you know, just do his job and go home. They had to be interested. I paid them a couple of bucks more an hour than they would get doing sheetrock and plywood. And the result was I had some really good crews, including several women, several young women. And we have a dear friend now who actually restores pianos and tunes them. And she is desperate for a piece of land and uh, wants to build her own cabin. She's become a friend of our family, a young woman in her early 30s, and a friend of my daughter's, and uh, really wants to do it. So I'm advising her to start with something small. And uh, that's what we will do when she gets a chance. I'm right now building a garage for a family who has my rent log cabin, because the man's a mechanic and doesn't have a place to work. So. He and his 17-year-old son and I are doing this, and the son is getting really interested in this sort of thing by actually doing it and helping me. Mm. We put on half a roof yesterday. Uh, so, you know, he's getting sort of hooked on it. So I would advise anybody to think small, and then if that's what the person wants to do, go on that hunt for the right piece of land, uh, not right next to a chemical plant, not right where a developer is going to clear cut next door, but it's worth it to take some time to look at the region, the area a person wants to live in, and uh, sometimes you can work through a realtor, sometimes you just talk to the local people, and we were able to buy this piece of land, this 22 acres, from a family who bought 100 acres, and it looked too much from the handle. A young pair of lawyers, so they were glad to cut us off some, and it was ideal. We didn't have to go through a realtor. We uh, they financed it, and that's unheard of today. But it can be done if you if you get into an area where you get to know the people. And I'm talking about the not the new newbies, but the people who've been there, the old families. And you go to the local church, and you uh, trade at the local store and let people know if you're interested in this sort of thing, that sooner or later something will open up. It may be even an old log cabin that can be bought cheaply and torn down and moved. That was most of what we did. We recycled log cabins. Oh, we probably built 30 or 40 new ones, but 
My wife counted up about 10 years ago. We worked on 460 cabins at that time, and I hadn't retired yet. Uh, major work on them, not, not just, you know, a little bit, but major stuff. And you start small, but do get that good piece of land if you're serious, if you find you're serious and are willing to put in the time. You have also, you know, written about stonemasonry, and uh, again, one of the things in your, your your log cabin book that you said that I found interesting that you put a stone fireplace in every home you build. With one or two exceptions, people had us build workshops in them, but 100% of the workshops we built got turned into living quarters. People just said, whoa, I want to live in that. Right, yes. <laughs> but, uh, you're right, Log, uh, stone fireplaces in a cabin to be lived in. We did them all. I have two of them in my house, mm. and I have a combination log and timber frame uh, house and actually four sections, two timber frame and two log uh, put together. But uh, I actually have three books on stonework. I'm not real sure what else I can say about rocks, but my publisher kept after me to do the last two after I've done the initial one and uh, cover different aspects of it. Stonework is very dear to my heart. What, tell us a little bit about that. What, what, what is it that draws you to being a stonemason? Because I, I have never encountered a man just on my own who you know just in meeting someone out somewhere who was a stonemason so what is it that that, that drew you to being a stonemason and and that has maintained your interest that makes it so dear to your heart well i'm sort of unique that way we did build it my brother and my dad and i built a stone house when i was 13 and they vowed never to touch another stone they said this is not what we want to do and i was just fascinated Part of it was the permanence of what you're putting out. You're taking nature's hardest sub, uh, substance and you learn how to shape it if you need to shape it or use it in as natural shapes. And you build something that is as permanent as anything on this earth. And it's just a wonderful feeling of accomplishing that. And stone in an area where there is natural stone will fit no matter what you build. Uh, you can build anything out of it. You can build a complete stone house or stone foundation and chimney, and that ties it to the earth and helps a lot with that uh, fitting of the house to the landscape. But I've just always enjoyed it. It's something you can't hurry. It's something you have to be patient with, and it puts a lot of things in perspective. People want instant gratification. Now, you can't do that with stonework. You take your time. You shape the material God put there for you. And you can actually see it this way. That stone has been waiting for millions of years for you to put it in its right place. And when you do, it's immensely satisfying. Mm. So it it, requ- it makes you have patience. You, you must have patience then, which is a good quality to learn. Well, I'll tell you another story. Years ago, my first publisher did the Log Cabin book in 1978. It was a division of Harper and Rose, which became Harper Collin. And after that book, uh, I was very interested in blacksmithing. I had been doing blacksmithing and learning from an old-time blacksmith. And uh, he 
got in touch with me about the next book because that first book was doing well. And I said, could I do one on blacksmithing? He said, blacksmithing, but everybody's interested in stone. I don't know, but from his New York perspective, and I think he was raised in the country too. But anyway, he said stone is more, uh, more people are interested in stone. So as a matter of fact, my wife and our first child at the time went to visit her mother for a week, and I wrote that first book in that week. Mm. No revisions, no edit book in a week. Normally it takes me more like a Right. But I just had a lot to say about stone, and I've been doing it most of my life, and I was 41 at the time that I wrote that one. And it's just a very satisfying craft. It's called a building with stone, very simply. And it's been through a lot of editions since, uh, oh, I think it came out in 78 or 79, I can't remember. But uh, it's just something, when you accomplish it, even if it's just stone steps or a stone path or a stone wall, it's something that's going to be there uh, forever, as far as we're concerned. It's immensely satisfying, but it's talk about hard work. It's a lot harder work than hacking out a log cabin. Mm. There are no light stones. <laughs> right. That, that's... I actually have a five-foot-tall daughter who's a theater director in uh, L.A. who's fine, a stonemason. She learned when she was 16. And when she comes home, we have to build something out of rocks. Wow. That keeps you in good shape, I'm sure. It's, it's, a, it's a great bonding experience. Well, I keep moving. I work out a couple times a week, and uh, our property is uphill and down. I walk an average of a half mile a day just doing about my business here, mm. and I'm usually building something. So, yeah, I stay in reasonably good shape. I, uh, I don't like to sit around and vegetate, and in right. cold weather, I'm having to do that some, but that's when I'm writing. I've got eight novels in print, and I'm working on a few more, but they're not selling particularly well, but all of them have stuff about crafts in them. What, My characters are almost always craft people. What tell us tell us a little bit more uh, about that. So you, you you've done all of this building, and that's one of the things that is very intriguing about you. One of the three, you know, you're a builder, but you're also a writer. You taught journalism, and now you are, uh, and, and have been writing fiction. So so what type of fiction do you like, and and what informs your fiction? What, what, what is well, it? my publishers, and I've had three so far on the fiction, have tried to categorize it, and I do historical fiction. I've had three Civil War, uh, I mean, Revolutionary War era books published. One is a sequel to another, and there's another individual one. And uh, I have written and am writing on the Civil War era, and I wrote... Uh, one about a feud in the mountains of Arkansas in the 1950s, so you could say historical mostly, although there's some uh, contemporary ones, and they're all people who work with their hands, and the message is that we're no different from the stockbroker or the bank president or anybody else in our emotions and our, our uh, daily lives, but people have always considered craftsmen to be, oh, backwoodsman, uh, that's a label I love. I love being a, <laughs> but uh, it's a situation where you come up with a story and you make your lead character likable. He has to be likable. 
and he has to have some of the same emotions and outlooks that ordinary people do because you have to write for your reader and you don't know who he'll be but it's good to build a profile of your reader and you write essentially for the other person it's communication and it's two ways the world's full of people who write and can't publish because they don't relate to the reader and I like to relate to craft people people who work with their hands as well as having, you know, ordinary lives otherwise. Mm. So you write historical fiction. Obviously, you must read a good bit. So what, tell us about some of your, your reading habits when you're not building with stone or logs. <laughs> well, when I'm shut in, I read a lot. I tried for years to read, uh, to read two books a week of every kind. And that includes, I have a pretty extensive uh, library on religion, and uh, are you familiar with the uh, Francis Schaeffer, How, How Should We Then Live? Absolutely, yes. Isn't that a wonderful book? Oh, it's fantastic. I'm rereading that right now. And a former student of mine who uh, worked with Bill Gates out in Seattle, who's now a very rich man, I did some stonework for him a few years ago, gave me a book by, uh, oh, the fellow who was in jail who became a Christian Chuck something. Chuck Colson. Yeah, and his book, How How Should We Now Live? And he's given me that, and I'm on that one now. But I read fiction. I have favorites. Uh, usually tends toward historical fiction. That is, uh, history is one of my real loves. I minored it in college, and when I was making bad grades, I'd take a history course to get my grades up. <laughs> oh, boy, I, I wish everybody was like that. Wonderful. And so, imagine my surprise. When I was reading your book, I said, okay, this man is obviously conservative in the best sense of the word because you, you love conserving good yes. traditional things. I love, the, 
actual meaning of the word, not the connotation. Right, right. So, I was I, on one hand, I was not surprised to see that you also were uh, a believer, and that you pastor even a, a Presbyterian church, and that you came into the ministry though rather later in life than many. So, you know, tell us, you know, tell us about. First of all, just your faith in Christ in general. What type of role has that played? And then, you know, what drew you to become a pastor in, you know, the the second half of your life? Sort of a backdoor thing. When we were young, we lived way out in the woods, away from any church. And our parents read the Bible to us from as early as we could understand. And at teenage, I... Uh, walked a couple of miles to the nearest uh, Baptist church, which was right close to the school that we also went to, the grammar school. And I began listening to fiery sermons and realized that wasn't exactly right, but might be. And the thing, it was the age of 17 in high school, I was traveling to several miles uh, with a school bus to a church, to a school, high school. And uh, all of my classmates back then, and I'm talking the 1940s and 50s, were churchgoers, as were most of the country. And uh, I was baptized in the Baptist church there, which was not a uh, earth-shaking, loud, uh, fire, brims, fiery brimstone church. It was a good church. And anyway, I continued to uh, go to church off and on for a long time. Finally, when my wife and I were married and were raising our children, which began in the uh, 1970s, we realized that we needed to affiliate with a good church because the children needed guidance, we needed the reinforcing, and we searched for a church over here in Virginia because I had been a little lapsed in our attending before. And uh, my ancestors were Scottish and all of them Presbyterian, so I mean, they weren't in the Presbyterian churches where I grew up. So we managed to find one here, and. Uh, I took a bigger and bigger role in it over the years, and all of our children were uh, baptized and con- confirmed in that church. And uh, most of them, all but one, or, I guess all but one, were very active in college and religious organization. So as time went by, I found myself conducting the uh, older adult uh, Bible study, and I had done a lot of public speaking and worked in public relations and a lot of things in my checkered career. And I just naturally took over doing a lot of that and our church didn't have a youth pastor at the time, so I took that on. And as time went by, I realized that God had been preparing me for a role as pastor and I hadn't even been aware of it. But my experiences uh, had led me to to, uh, become partly qualified. So at the year 2000, there was a uh, course offered with the Presbyterian Church that was limited, and it was for what we call commissioned lay pastors. And uh, the bottom line was it was a three-year course, but it didn't have to meet every day. We met on Saturdays. And I studied almost everything but Greek and Hebrew and uh, qualified and uh, took this church uh, back in the woods that needed a lot of restoration country people and it was just a natural thing I tried to ignore it for five years uh, the feeling that I should pursue this and I had children in school and I had a business to run and a lot of other 
responsibility and finally I just couldn't ignore it anymore. I just instead of God tapping me on the shoulder, he began hitting me pretty hard on the shoulder and <laughs> said, This is something I want you to do. And so uh, I took oh, I got some of my training uh, online from uh, Dubuque, Iowa Seminary and some from the University of Virginia Religion Department and then there were these retired seminary professors who offered this course down in the next county and I was able to get in on that and eventually qualified, passed all the examinations and uh, I'd been uh, supplying the pulpit to four different churches in the area when the pastors needed off and one of them said we want to hire you at half time and that's where I've been for going on 19 years. Mm. My first church, and I'm quite sure it'll be my last. <laughs> right. But some things you can't ignore, and for me it is a calling. And a lot of my history before was, without my realizing it, was preparation for the ministry. Mm. I know that there are many illustrations that you can use with people and in preaching from your experience in building with stone, building with timber it gives you a perspective that's different from the guy who's 25 and coming out of seminary and who just goes straight into you know being a full-time pastor of some sort and who does not have a lot of dirt under his fingernails <laughs> well I'll tell you another story at the age of 27 my older brother and I bought a farm up in the mountains of Arkansas. Now it's a national park, a beautiful place called the Buffalo River. And I was we were exploring, my sister, my brother, and my sister's boyfriend and I were exploring this cave up on the face of the bluff. And I slipped off the path, 15 stories. I ripped up a four-inch diameter tree on the way down, landed in a pile of rocks face down with an avalanche on top of me and was up and walking within a week. And that put some things into perspective for me. Mm. God needed me here a little longer, and I've had two or three major accidents since. I broke my hip twice five years ago and got through all this, so I'm pretty sure God has more for me to do. And so these experiences, good, bad, however we want to label them, all have gone into reinforcing my ministry. Mm. I believe that uh, very strongly that this is where I need to be at this stage of my life. Well, that leads me really to my final question uh, for the interview. A lot of people, their goal is to stop working in their mature years. But you know, although you don't run your business the same way that you were 20 years ago, at 86 you still write, you build, you teach, you preach you help on the farm. What motivates Charles McRaven to get up and keep on working every day? Well, as God told Adam, you're going to labor the sweat of your brow and get your living from the soil that bore you, and that's still true. Uh, we're meant to work. We're meant to do God's work, reach out to other people, and amazingly, I'm able, well, right now, I'm building a garage for the fellow who rents my cabin because he's a mechanic, and I love doing it. I wasn't going to do it for myself, for the property, but he's there, and it's a great family, and I love doing it for him, and I'm teaching him and his son to build. So that is a reward in itself, but 
find that people down, but being out there working with your hands brings you closer to God. I really believe that. I really believe that. And I believe we all have a, a certain uh, degree of the Holy Spirit in us from the time we took Jesus as our Savior. And the Holy Spirit guides us and helps us make decisions. While my decisions tend more toward the natural things and being outdoors, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I tried uh, I tried working for corporations a few times, uh, and I just couldn't do it. I worked for Caterpillar Tractor, trading diesel mechanics 50 years ago. I had worked for a power and light company back in the uh, 60s, and that's not where I was supposed to be. I was supposed to be out. Uh, I've tra- I have taught a lot of uh, building classes through the local uh, the local uh, tech school here and the community college here. I've taught masonry classes, construction classes, and I do teach workshops, although I've curtailed some of the week-long workshops. So working and teaching people how and working alongside of I think it's where I need to be. I won't necessarily recommend it for everybody, but it works for me. Mm. Well, this has been really good, and, and I, I appreciate your taking the time to talk and, and tell us about your, your work and your calling. I, thank you. Well, Matt, I appreciate you asking me. I will end with one other thing. I've taught all five of our children to build. My four daughters know how to fix their trucks, and they know how to put a roof on, and my son's an engineer. So I passed it on in my family, and uh, I'm very glad I did, and so are they. Thank you.